No, we're good. Great. So why is tonight's talk called When Harry Met Sariputra? Uh, Sariputta was um, one of the leading disciples of the, of the Buddha, Arhant, and someone who um, mastered the concentration, skills of concentration in particular. Um, but hearing about all of that on the first night of a jhana retreat just makes you want to say, well, I'll have what she's having, or he's having. Um, because the beginning parts of a, of a retreat like this are all about laying the groundwork and, and getting through the sleepiness and getting through the dukkha day and getting through and, and laying, that, laying out the groundwork. So tonight, I will talk a little bit about jhana. But uh, unlike the pastrami sandwich at Katz's, uh, it's not going to be so easy to access uh, in this early part of the retreat. And that's all part of the process. Uh, and in fact, the purification of mind, the going through the seeing hindrances, the, 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 the surf zone, so to speak, where the waves are very choppy before they get smooth later on, um, that is part of the practice and perhaps the most essential part. Uh, that phrase, the surf zone, I took from uh, um, Stephen and Tina, who were two jhana teachers in a very uh, strict kind of form of teaching jhana. And um, Stephen, I think, was a surfer. And uh, so the, he used that metaphor because even in the course of one sit or in the course of a week-long retreat, you know, it can feel like it's just very, very, very bumpy. And there's no way to get to the calmer water at the other side of the surf zone except through the surf zone. Um, and so that it starts to look very familiar, Dharma 101, uh, accepting, letting go, coming back, coming back, coming back. So it should be very familiar. So I, I um, want to express some gratitude, first of all, to all of you for not dropping the course when uh, Lee got ill. Um, I've been a student of Lee's for a couple of years, and uh, in the summer of last year, of 2015, um, I completed the training course with him, and uh, I asked him, you know, we're going to do some big ritual to, you know, are you going to knight me or something like that? But if uh, those of you who have sat with Lee before know that's, that's not his style. And he said, of course not. <laughs> you just go out and teach if you want to. And uh, so I, I've just started doing that, and it's an honor to be um, uh, his substitute uh, this week. And uh, the good news, for those who don't know it, is Lee's now back in the Bay Area and uh, has been getting some good medical attention and is getting better and is getting a lot of rest. So uh, I will be co-teaching with him in the springtime at Cloud Mountain um, uh, in Washington, Washington State. Uh, and uh, I think then he'll be putting me back out of a job because uh, uh, he seems to be getting better, which obviously is, is really wonderful to hear. I think, you know, Lee and I really share, we share a lot of things, but, and two, but two I want to highlight. You know, one is the personal belief that this kind of practice is an essential or at least extremely helpful part of, of the path. Um, some people are better at it than others. Some people like it more than others. Some people are just into it for whatever reason. But for everyone that I've come across uh, in these years of teaching, this form of practice, even if it's not the central form of your Dharma practice, can really become one of the most valuable tools in the toolkit. And so when I was starting out teaching, 
you know, I started thinking about the supply and demand, that there are a lot of wonderful, wonderful Vipassana teachers and mindfulness teachers out there. And I could be one more of them if I really wanted to. But I had felt that in my own path, that jhana, these uh, stages of absorption that we'll be exploring this week, had had such a, a beneficial effect and impact, and that there weren't that many teachers out there. And as some of you probably know, there are different approaches to how best to teach this practice. Uh, so how deep does a concentration state have to be for it to count? That's like a big thing that only about 20 people care about, but they care about it intensely. <laughs> and I've, I found, you know, I think the second thing I want to say that I have in common with Lee is that his pragmatic approach to the Dharma as a whole, but in particular to jhana practice, is something I really share. And uh, I, it's, it's something I verified, you know, these practices I've verified from my, my own experience. I'm not teaching anything that I haven't experienced. Uh, and that's true of Lee as well. And most importantly, though, I think we're, you know, he and I both teach what can really help, right? And the Buddha was asked again and again and again, you know, all these questions about cosmology and ontology and all kinds of stuff. And I love those questions. I have a PhD in religion. I have a law degree. I have a lot of degrees. Um, but he refused to answer those questions. And he just said, I teach dukkha and the end of dukkha, suffering and the end of suffering. What are the, what are, what's the path? To, uh, to change the way, it, the way we are in the world, uh, to suffer a little bit less, and or in my, in, my, in my wording, to be one less jerk. That's the G-rated version because this is being recorded. And uh, it's clear that developing samadhi, collectedness of mind, concentration, if we want to use that word, and I'll probably use the word concentration a lot, but just know that it's an imperfect translation of samadhi, um, of, uh, you know, shamatha, the practice of gathering the mind together, of making the mind, in the words of the suttas, you know, malleable, wieldy, attained to imperturbability. It was clear that that was an essential part of that path. And not only is, is, uh, is it one of, part of the Eightfold Path, um, but again and again and again, uh, when asked to describe the Buddha's path of meditation, how, you know, how does it differ from others? What is it about? Um, you know, sila, samadhi, and panya, virtuous conduct, uh, samadhi, training the mind, concentrating the mind, and wisdom, panya, again and again in different forms and different permutations come up. And actually, there are fewer permutations on the samadhi side even than the panya side. So which is the most important liberating wisdom? Is it dependent origination? Is it the four noble truths? Is it the four elements? Is it the five aggregates? Which Buddhist list is the one that's the most important one to have in mind? Um, and the answer is all of them, right? They're different, different uh, students and different, uh, different, different pieces that unlock these doors inside the mind for each of us. Interestingly, for samadhi, it, it almost is always, it's almost always these four jhanas, these four somewhat altered states of consciousness with some degree of absorption, some degree of, of one-pointedness, um, and which also have a lot of really happy, nice descriptions about them. That's why this is when Harry met Sally. Let's just, I thought, I wanted to start with the text itself. So this is from Diga Nikaya number two. Again, if you've sat with Lee, you know he, he memorized all the suttas. Maybe one, a few more years, I will too. Um, in it, the, the Buddha's being asked, what are the fruits of the spiritual life? And he's being asked this by a king, a very powerful king, uh, and also not the most ethical king. 
Um, times have not necessarily changed. And uh, rather than tell this highly unethical king, who's a despotic ruler and doesn't respect the rule of law, um, rather than tell this king to buzz off, the Buddha actually answers the question. And it's interesting that it's, it's one of the long discourses, and it is long. Because at first he starts out with very worldly benefits of being a spiritual practitioner. You know, you get respected, you're, 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 it's, it's kind of more relaxing, you don't have to worry about as much stuff. And uh, then there are all these things which you can do to make your, make your conduct better so you hurt other people less. All these, you know, kind of worldly benefits. And only gradually does he get to what we conventionally think of as the spiritual path, you know, the spiritual stuff. Uh, I think that in and of itself is really important and helpful to see that, right? We start out in a way that's relatable and then maybe get to some of the weirder stuff. Um, but I'm just going to do the little bit of the weirder stuff where uh, the Buddha comes around to, um, the, to the practice of meditation. So as we sit down to meditate, the Buddha says, we uh, are given some simple instruction and notice immediately that it's impossible to carry out that very simple instruction. Um, and there are many reasons for that, but really, classically, there are five, the five hindrances. And so the practitioner comes to see the five hindrances and work with the five hindrances and allow the five hindrances, and all of us probably know the five hindrances really well. That's a different talk, but we, we know them. And then at some point, according to this sutta, the, the hindrances lessen in intensity. You've been sitting for a long time, and you feel great. Right? Uh, as the hindrances are abandoned in the bhikkhu's cell, in the practitioner's self, it sounds like being out of debt or good health, release from prison, freedom, a place of security. And then there's this interesting uh, formula that is kind of a, um, not to get too fancy about it, but it's, it's kind of the fractal nature of, of, uh, of meditation practice because it's the same on the small scale as on the big scale. So these hindrances go down by some miracle not by a miracle, by applied effort and concentration. Um, seeing that the hindrances have been abandoned, the meditator becomes glad. Glad, he or she becomes enraptured. Enraptured, the body grows tranquil. The body tranquil, the meditator is sensitive to pleasure. Feeling pleasure, the meditator's mind becomes concentrated. So sequentially, this really nice stuff comes in between abandoning the hindrances and then entering the jhanas, these four states of altered states of, of consciousness. But also that map kind of maps onto the four jhanas themselves, where the first one has the most uh, uh, rapture, piti, to it. So there's gladness, there's pamoja, this sort of gateway to the jhanas, and then there's this piti, rapture, then the mind grows tranquil, right? That's more, a little more of the, the sense of the second jhana. Then there's pleasure, happiness, which is kind of the sense of the third jhana. And then the mind becomes really concentrated and equanimous, which is kind of the fourth jhana. So you kind of go through a mini four jhanas before getting into the jhanas. But it sounds already pretty good, right? I'll have what she's having. And let's just hear some of these words. We'll have a little more time with um, getting into the nitty-gritty of jhana practice, but I think it's a good way to start just kind of hearing the descriptions, even if we've heard them before. So, quite withdrawn from sensuality, withdrawn from unskillful mental qualities, the meditator enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure, born from withdrawal, accompanied by thought and evaluation. 
The meditator permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal, meaning possibly either withdrawal from the hindrances or just seclusion you know, into practice. And then there's a metaphor, uh, which is not actually an operative metaphor for us today, but here it is. Uh, just as if a skilled bathman or bathsman's apprentice would pour bath powder, powder into a brass basin and knead it together, sprinkling it again and again with water, so that this ball of bath powder, saturated, moisture-laden, permeated within and without, would not drip. Even so, the meditator pervades this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of withdrawal. So, as you may have heard before, um, this was at a time where soap was kind of a powder and you would add water to the soap powder and make a soap ball. So the idea of the simile is that it's just as though, just like the powder is really held together and fully suffused by the water, so too the mind is fully suffused with this rapture uh, and pleasure born of seclusion or of withdrawal. Um, sounds great, right? Interestingly, there's not really an instruction in here, right? As to, it just sort of says this happens. We'll talk about that more later. There is nothing of the meditator's entire body unpervaded by rapture and pleasure born from withdrawal. This is a fruit of the contemplative life, visible here and now, more excellent than the previous ones and more sublime. I just want to pause to notice something very unusual about this description of one of the fruits of the spiritual life. So a lot of us have experienced on meditation retreat, uh, you know, it can be hard, right? It's difficult, it's hard work. And yet, here's what's described as one of the fruits of the spiritual life in a canonical text, being described as happiness, rapture, and joy, and pleasure. You know, the Buddha, one of the names he was given at the time was the happy one. And this is certainly very different from the austere ascetic practices that, as we know, the Buddha practiced before his enlightenment, um, before discovering his own path of practice. Think about how radical this must have, this might sound to a cultural context that associates spiritual practice with austerity and with, with asceticism and the more pain and affliction of the body uh, than the more liberation. Notice too that the embodiment of this description of this state, right? It's not an out-of-body experience, right? It suffuses this very body with the rapture and pleasure uh, born of withdrawal this very body, right? So the dominant view at the time, predominant view of the time, and I think even of our time today, right, is that spirit and body are separate and we need to, the less body, the more spirit. And if we can get behind, get away from the body completely, then we'll be really spiritual and that's the best possible result. And here, right, it's not yoga as we understand yoga today, but it's a different form of very embodied practice that rejects that dualistic conception that the liberation comes by getting out of, you know, you know forget the body, forget the body, right? Now, we might miss that because there's plenty of stuff in the Dharma that also talks about, right, sense pleasures and getting away from sense desire and the precepts and you know, moving away from this pleasure and that and so forth. And yet, the pleasure of the jhana is a pleasure. So I was once on a two-month retreat up the road with Pao Xiaodo, who's a, a, a concentration master from Burma. And um, 
it was really, you know, an amazing experience, both for my own practice and just to be in the presence of someone who, with this deep, deep of a level of practice, just watching him walk around. And he sat all of the sits, and he, I mean, you know, it was in even his 80s back then. And um, someone asked him, you know, why do arahants, why do fully enlightened beings practice the jhana, right? So we know you know, the end of this story, right? The jhanas help develop uh, the mind. The mind can then be used for insight practice. And so that's the path of liberation. But what if you've, if you've finished the path of liberation and you're done, why do the suttas say that the, you know, that the arhants continue to practice the jhanas? Sariputta included. And uh, Pauk said, he took a second actually to think about it, uh, maybe to think about it, maybe just for dramatic effect. Uh, and he said, to attain jhanic pleasure. And that was just an offhand remark. That was not really the focus of the two-month retreat, but that, I thought that was a, a really important piece, actually. And I, I want to emphasize it in the beginning because, you know, as we go through the practice of getting concentrated and quieting the mind and guarding the sense doors and all that stuff, that joy is okay. <laughs> More than okay, right? The, the Buddha, when he, re, when he recollected these pleasures, uh, having entered, he realized that when he was younger, oh, I had entered into one of these states not knowing what it was. And he reflects on it, and he says, there was, there was nothing unwholesome about that pleasure, about that joy. And so he thinks, we could use that, we could use that capacity of this body to experience joy, First, for its own sake, right? But and but also for the for the path of liberation. I find that really affirming. I actually really like that. So I wanted to highlight that. So that's his the description here of the first jhana. And I'll incidentally, um, the nitty gritty part, um, so that you don't feel you have to take notes, are actually on a handout. So I'll talk more about that in a minute. But don't feel like you want to quickly make sure you get the details. Okay, so that's the first piece. Furthermore, with the fading of rapture, of piti, the meditator remains equanimous, mindful, and alert, and senses pleasure with the body. Right? Another line I'd like to put a highlighter on. Uh, he or she enters... Uh, I skipped the second jhana. Sorry about that. <laughs> Furthermore, with the stilling of thought, uh, vitaka and vichara, thought and evaluation. The meditator enters and remains in the second jhana, rapture and pleasure, born of composure, unification of awareness, free from thought and evaluation, internal composure or assurance. He or she permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of concentration, of samadhi. Just as a lake with spring water welling up from within, having no inflow from the east, west, north, or south, and with the skies supplying abundant showers time and again, so that the cool fount of water welling up from within the lake would permeate and, perfa and pervade, suffuse and fill, the, fill it with cool waters, there being no part of the lake unpervaded by the cool waters. Just this way, the, the meditator permeates this very body with the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. There is nothing of his entire body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure born of concentration. Once again, the, the refrain, I'll have what she's having. Oh, sorry, the refrain, this too is a fruit of the contemplative life, visible here and now, more excellent than the previous ones and more sublime. So a slightly more rarefied state. Some of the, some of the rapture seems to, lessens a little bit. The thinking kind of decreases a bit. And there's pleasure in the body, 
of just of that concentration. And furthermore, with the fading of rapture, he or she remains equanimous, mindful, and alert, and senses pleasure with the body. The meditator enters and remains in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare, equanimous and mindful, he has a pleasant abiding. It's funny, we don't actually know where that quote comes from. There's not like some other sutta where that comes from. Uh, he or she permeates and pervades, suffuses and fills this very body with the pleasure divested of rapture. So now it's a cooler pleasure without that uh, piti energy in it. And here's the simile again. Just as in a lotus pond, some of the lotuses born and growing in the water stay immersed in the water and flourish without standing up out of the water so that they're permeated and pervaded, suffused and filled with cool water from their roots to the tips, and nothing of those lotuses would be unpervaded with cool water. Even so, the meditator permeates this very body with the pleasure free free of rapture. There's nothing of his or her entire body unpervaded with the pleasure free of rapture. So once again, we get a sense of a body filled with a certain kind of wholesome, we're told, pleasure. This too is a fruit of the contemplative life, visible here and now, more excellent than the previous ones and more sublime. And finally, furthermore, with the abandoning of pleasure and displeasure, uh, that's sukha and dukkha, the abandoning of sort of positive feeling and negative feeling. Uh, as with the earlier disappearance of elation and distress, he or she enters and remains in the fourth jhana, purity of equanimity and mindfulness, neither pleasure nor displeasure. He or she sits permeating the body with a pure, bright awareness. And then a strange, maybe, simile. Just as if a man were sitting covered from head to foot with a white cloth so that there would be no part of his body to which the white cloth did not extend, even so, the meditator sits pervading the body with a pure, bright awareness. There is nothing of his or her entire body unpervaded by pure, bright awareness. So here, instead of this kind of the, the aquatic metaphors from the first three jhanas, we have a, a, somewhat, a different kind of a metaphor, like a body covered in, covered in a sheet or in a shroud. And if you've had that experience, that fourth jhanic experience, it is a bit different. There's not that pleasure and joy. You don't see those, those words that were used so much in the earlier descriptions in this fourth one. This too, great king, is a fruit of the contemplative life, visible here and now, more excellent than the previous ones and more sublime. And finally, the kicker. With the mind thus concentrated, purified and bright, unblemished, free from defects, pliant, malleable, steady, attained to imperturbability, he or she directs and inclines it to knowledge and vision. In other words, to insight practice. Uh, and then goes through, uh, this body of mind is endowed with form, composed of the four primary elements, born of mother and father, nourished with rice and porridge, subject to inconstancy, rubbing, pressing, dissolution, dispersion, etc. So moving into mindfulness of the body, seeing the body as component parts, not seeing the self as Atman, as, some trans as a transcendent self, but seeing the self as, uh, as a bit illusory, or at most of it as an empty phenomenon rolling on. And that is the kicker, right? That it's not, this practice is not the cul-de-sac of fun spiritual experiences. It is a lovely place of fun spiritual experiences, but as an entryway to uh, deeper insight practice. And again, for me, this is very, uh, 
this was true from my own experience. After that two months with uh, Pau Auk, I took, uh, I took five days off to fly to uh, Nepal, to Lumbini, the birthplace of the Buddha, where there's a number, it's kind of a Buddhist Epcot center, where all of the different worlds where, where the Dharma has flourished have temples and buildings and so forth, and among many of them are, uh, are two uh, kind of Burmese-style uh, viharas, you know, it's, it, which reminds me, you know, I come from the Jewish tradition, I teach in that tradition as well, and there's a Jewish joke that they, these guys find a, a Jewish guy stranded on a desert island, and they say uh, he's there, and he notices that they notice that there are two. He's built two synagogues on the desert island, and they say to the man, "Why did you build two synagogues?" And he says, "Well, that's the one I go to, and that's the one I won't be caught dead in." <laughs> that's how I felt in Lumbini, because of course there was our Vipassana center, and then there was the other Vipassana center, right? There, there was the Goenka people and the not Goenka people. We were across the street from each other, so we could kind of wonder at each other's practices. Uh, anyway, and at that point, I was doing a very, a very dry insight practice kind of retreat, uh, following the path on the Visuddhimagga with Saito Vivekananda, some of you may have sat with. He visits here uh, each year. And um, I found that the jhanic practice I, I really, really helped my insight practice on the on two levels. First, on the macro level, there was all of this momentum of concentration, even though I'd had that five-day break in between. And secondly, um, I cheated. I cheated. You know, we were doing Sayadaw Pandita's dry insight practice, which does not include jhana, and it was tough. You know, Three-hour sits at time. You know, after I was getting concentrated, and just you know, the conditions were were difficult a little bit for a Westerner like me. You know, there wasn't like the electricity would go out, and it was cold, and it was damp, and it was tough. It was hard. And um, so every so often, I would cheat and just cycle through the jhanas and be so restored, you know, in a way that the mind wasn't distracted. I didn't have to, you know, I never left the tiny, it's a small center there in Lumbini, I never left the center for the whole time I, I was on the retreat. I didn't go for a walk. I didn't do, I didn't do any of those things which, which are fine, which we do to, you know, just get a little refreshed. Just going through the, each, you know, going up to fourth jhana and uh, getting the mind really clear again, free from hindrances, you know, I could exit right away and do insight practice very quickly. Quickly meaning just noticing a lot of things and quieting the mind quickly without some of that stress, that difficulty. Uh, and I think on the macro scale of that three-month retreat, you know, that just enabled me to, to do the kind of practice that I was there to do. Um, so it's not just the kicker textually. I mean, I, I, I've seen that many times. I know some of some of some other folks here in the room have jhana practice as well, and we can see that with our own experience. Um, and that's why this is this is called this retreat was called jhana and insight, rather than jhana and spiritual materialism. Um, you know, the purpose is to is to cultivate these states, but not become so intoxicated by the states that we think that any state or anything contingent phenomenon is worth clinging to, because it's not right. And believe me, it's rough. You come out of third jhana and you're feeling all of that pleasure and it's great and then you watch it disappear as the conditions change. It's a conditioned phenomenon that arises and passes. One form of insight practice which we can do, which we'll talk about later, is, uh, is actually doing just noticing the three characteristics of the jhanas themselves. You come out of this wonderful bliss state. There it is, it's impermanent. 
you want to go back in that bliss state, <laughs> there's the dukkha. And the bliss state wasn't something, it's not you, right? It's a thing that happened. It's part of dependent origination. It's part of, the, you know, the conditions were present, the state was there. Conditions are not present, the state's not there. So I start with that long quote from the suttas, partly I admit because Lee does that, but partly because I think just seeing the place of this practice within uh, the path, uh, the, this, the path laid out uh, by the Buddha. Um, and seeing it within the context of sila, of sila samadhi, and, and panya. Um, you know, in a retreat context, we're fortunate that so many of our needs are taken care of, and uh, there aren't too many opportunities for unvirtuous conduct. Um, but still, you know, having the precepts in mind, whether we take them form formally or not, obviously not, not harming, not taking what's not given. You know, there's not a whole lot of fun intoxicants on retreat anyway. Uh, refraining from sexual misconduct, right? So just, the, you know, and it's really easy to speak, to refrain from harsh speech when you're not speaking at all. Uh, and those really are the foundation. You know, there's a, the ending of that sutta, it kind of has a, a downer ending. So the Buddha, after going through the part about the jhanas, then goes through, you know, really the path of insight in, in detail. And... Um, the king is pretty impressed, actually, and basically becomes a stream enterer, the first level of, of uh, liberation in some of the maps. And then he leaves, and he's very, he's really happy, and you know, his whole retinue leaves, elephants and everything else, they march off. And once he's gone, uh, the Buddha says, this king has ruined himself, uh, because the king had actually killed his own father to assume the throne. And had the king not, you think you have parent issues. Uh, and and so his, he was so ruined by this unethical conduct that had he not done that, he would have become an arahant here and right here and now. But because, uh, because he, but he couldn't, you know, he, he, there's no way he can get over that level of, of unethical conduct. Um, fortunately, few of us uh, hopefully rise to that level. But just remembering that the sila piece is, is so it's such a it's such a foundation, and we know that from any other retreat where you start getting quiet and then something comes up. And uh, I'll talk in just a second about how to work with those things slightly differently on this retreat than others. But we're familiar with that when there's something unresolved in our sila life, that it makes it impossible for samadhi, for centeredness of mind, to really deepen. And without that centeredness of mind, it's it's impossible for the panya, for wisdom, to really deepen. One of the definitions of liberation um, in this path is the intuitive knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. And I think that word intuitive is worth dwelling on for a little bit. Right? We all probably have knowledge of the Four Noble Truths. We've been around the block, right? So all you have to do is read the book and then you're enlightened. Um, right, but that's not the that's not the kind of knowledge that's being described. Intuitive knowledge, like, you know, the Pali word is it gets in your kishkas, it's really in there, in your guts, and that's the kind of knowledge that we're looking for. Where and and from a sort of amateur neurodharma perspective, you know, we're rewiring the brain, right? We're rewiring the brain, and the Buddha didn't know about neuroscience. He didn't use those those terms but did know from experience that it's not, you don't rewire the brain by reading a book, right? Neurons fire together and wire together. It takes practice. Map is not territory. And so I, in the way I understand the sila, samadhi, panya piece is each is the precedent for the other, 
right? And then, of course, it circles back, and the more wisdom, hopefully, the more compassion naturally flows. I'll just say, you know, briefly, I think, um, talking about when things come up on, on retreat, you know, obviously, I, so I, I just taught a jhana retreat at the Garrison Institute the week after the election. So you think your mind is distracted. And um, I'll just share, you know, I think it's, it, in a certain way, it's the elephant in the room that hopefully the thoughts won't come up too much after the first couple of days, but certainly the feelings might. You know, a lot of people are really dealing, it's a grieving process for a lot of us. There's fear that's justified fear, right? You can't just say, oh, it's fear. No, there's, there's justification for the fear. Uh, and anger, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, real, a real hindrance festival. Um, and, um, you know, I think it, what's, what was interesting for me, so I, I thought going into the garrison retreat, like, okay, this is going to come up in all of the interviews, and, you know, this is when we practice. And you, you practice, you, you know, the Buddha didn't live in stable times, we don't live in stable times, and I mean, this is, you know, we're not, just, we can't pretend as though nothing's happening in the world. I was surprised that after the first couple of days, it didn't come up that much. You know, there's a real, obviously, I say this obviously, I assume we all agree, you know, whatever our political views, we obviously think we need to be involved in the world and engaged and, and citizens of the world and caring about justice, whatever that means for us in detail. Um, but there's also the intent, the, the really important capacity of replenishment and retreat. I just wrote an article on Tricycle about this, so I just, it's all fresh in my mind, that, you know, this, is, this week is not going to be the time for us to be engaged. Right? And so to take, really, what does it mean to take refuge? You know, take refuge in the, in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha, to take refuge in this practice, right? You know, refuge in the sense of, of shelter, almost. And I want to, for what it's worth, give an encouragement to that, to allow that part of practice to really develop for each of you. Uh, to not be hesitant about taking that, just taking refuge in the practice itself. Um, if all goes well, and it went well three weeks ago, uh, you know, you can emerge from this week with a renewed capacity to do whatever the work is that you're doing in the world, um, including the, the political and social justice work that that hopefully we're involved with as part of our as far as as part of our practice, um, and so I, I really saw the saw that unfold uh, the week after the election, and it was strange being in my role because right I was not on retreat, so you know I was still going on Facebook, <laughs> and obviously not going to be sharing any any snippets from the news that that come in over the next week, um, but really seeing the capacity of practice to center us as human beings and build our capacity for compassion, for empathy, for wisdom. Um, and I really do believe that that, uh, I not believe in blind faith sense, like I, I've seen how that uh, helps us all be more effective in the work that needs to be done. So I just wanted to name the elephant in the room a little bit. And um, of course, there's plenty of space if anything is coming up around pain and grieving or anger or any of those things. It's not that that's not welcome. You know, we're welcoming whatever comes up. Um, but that it's also welcome to not be in that space and to take refuge in the practice. So a little bit about the, the fruits of the spiritual life in general. So um, a couple more logistic-y things. 
type. So we'll shift shift a little bit from the suttas to uh, to our week together. So I mentioned early on that um, this is really about laying the groundwork uh, these first couple of days, and for me, that's a really helpful piece to um, to just remember that uh, you know you do reap what you sow. These are conditioned phenomena. The mind is subject to conditions. And for the next 24 hours, at the, really all we're doing, except, I mean, if, some of, if someone has a, if one of you has a jhana practice and you pop into first jhana, that's great. But for the vast majority of us, we're really just going to be creating the, the conditions. We're going to be creating the conditions for jhana to arise on its own as it does, without any expectation, certainly that it will over the next day or so, but even in general. Um, you're really just here for this first day or two to babysit the mind. That's it. That's the only instruction you need to really just, you're here to babysit the mind while it does what it does and quiets down a bit. And it just takes time for that to happen. Um, if you're like me, you know, there'll probably be a fair amount of sleepiness. Um, I'm not... Also, likely, I'm not a particularly orthodox practitioner. Uh, so for, in my view, I can give you the traditional antidotes to sleepiness, and I can make Upandita proud, Sayad Upandita proud, by being really strict and firm about it. But I actually, if you need to take a nap, I, t I take naps on the first day. You know, we all move quickly. We live in a world that's incomprehensibly faster than, than that of the Buddha, certainly. And, and uh, even if we are kind of off the grid, that's true. Um, so just being wise with attention and, you know, uh, babysitting the mind when a lot of sleepiness is there and you know you're going to sleep through the sit, uh, you know, I think it's fine on the first couple of days in particular. You don't want to be necessarily in that place days and days from now, but certainly the beginning parts of the retreat. Um, these next parts, again, may be familiar for for us, but I, I think it's worth emphasizing and re-emphasizing. Some of the, the key practices over this first 24 to 48 hours, guarding the sense doors, reducing the number of sense objects, not in a dour, world-hating kind of way, <laughs> but just knowing, right, we're looking for a collectedness of mind. And that starts by just reducing the number of sense objects that we're taking in, moving really slowly. Uh, I try to fake it till you make it. I think that's in one of the suttas as well. Um, you know, I walk slower than I want to walk for the first couple of days. Just to, not, you know, if it's really like I'm pulling teeth and it's driving me crazy, I don't do that. But if it's not, just really kind of helping slow down. Maybe not on the food line where you're reaching for the leaf of lettuce. But apart from that, and apart from your yogi jobs, you know, taking time going really slowly, fake it till you make it. You know, and you'll, if you'll see other people walking around really slowly doing like, you know, Vipassana walking, and you look and think, it, you know, immediately the thought comes up, wow, that person's really concentrated. They're having a way better retreat than I am. They're faking it. They're not any more concentrated than you are. Um, so that's all familiar, I think, probably. Right? And you know, your, you know your practice, you know the rhythms of, of a seven-day seven retreat um, and what that's like. Um, a couple of things that might be different um, if you were used to doing Vipassana retreats, insight meditation retreats, or other mindfulness practice. Um, so uh, 
for the first while and, and then throughout the retreat, you know, we're going to be building one-pointedness of mind by focusing on one object. Uh, the primary object is the breath. Um, as you know, we can focus on the breath at different points in the body. It can be in the chest, it can be in the abdomen. It's nice to try, if it doesn't drive you nuts, uh, to instead focus on the sensations of the breath at the nostrils. If you've done a Goenka retreat, you know, that's kind of the first few days. Uh, the reason for that is simply that the, the sensory data is much lower in quantity uh, at the nostrils than it is in the chest. Uh, once with Vivekananda, he was asking me to, I think it was, a, he wanted me to name 10 different sensations on each inhale and 10 different on each outhale, out, uh, outhale, exhale. He's German, right? So it's like, name 10 different. And, and it's possible to do that with close attention. And you notice it's very helpful to do that, right? Because it gets very impermanent. You see how things are arising and passing very quickly. Good practice. Not the practice that we're doing on this retreat. Um, so again, concentration, concentrating the mind, meaning reducing the amount of, of information. Um, and so if we focus on the breath at the nostrils, uh, that's just less to look at. And I think it's really helpful for me, and maybe a really useful distinction between concentration and insight. Um, one of the classic ways in the Vasudhimaga, this canonical um, commentary, one of the ways to enter jhana is to stare at a, plast at a colored disc called the kasina. Now, if you think about it, this is, a, this is a simple colored circle. That's all it is. You are not getting any insight into the nature of reality from that colored circle, right? It's just something to focus on and look at and have the mind settle and stay on it, right? That's how dumb it is, right? Concentration practice is dumb, right? Insight practice is wise, right? We gain insight. You notice how things are impermanent. You notice how they're not self. You know, like you notice all kinds of things. We also gain what you could call content insight into your stuff, right? We're Western practitioners, most of us, right? So like you get, you're there on the cushion and you see stuff come up and you decide to explore that, you know, as a matter of like, oh, that's a huge thing. I'm going to actually look at that for a minute, right? And you gain all of this wisdom. It's a really smart practice. Samadhi practice is so dumb, right? It's not that at all. We're just staring, just imagine you're staring at a circle of paint on the wall. And that's it. And that's it. Right? So why is it useful? Because that capacity of being able to, for the mind to be so collected, then when you turn that really focused mind to the work of insight, right, you can, you can really see clearly. So it's a skill that's enormously useful, but in and of itself, it is a distinct kind of practice and a distinct kind of skill from what is familiar in terms of insight meditation or mindfulness. Uh, so we're on, let's say we're on the sensations of the breath, just the sitting there, obviously a distraction comes up. The instruction, we're, we're not, you know, sometimes if we're doing regular insight practice, there's sort of a choice at each of those moments. So you could shift your attention to that other object. Um, or you could just kind of gently let it go and come back to the primary object. Here, it's only the second part. Only we're just going to gently let it go, drop it, come back to the object. We're not really taking the byways of investigation. Now, will we gain an intuitive knowledge of the Four Noble Truths without doing any investigation of our experience? No. 
right? And that's, the, that's why it's a concentration in and of itself is a dead end. It's a great joke. Uh, it's a long joke. It's not too long. Uh, of a, uh, there's a jhana master who went into, uh, who was able to go into the, the sort of most absorbed of the attainments, a Naroda Samapati, which is like a state of suspended animation. And uh, he announced, a guru announced to his students he was going to do this uh, for seven years. And that's an amazing thing. And so he's, he's getting ready and he says, oh, I'm actually, I'm a little thirsty. Someone bring me some water. And there was some reason they couldn't bring him water. He's like, all right, whatever. It goes into the, his version of the Naroda Samapati, suspended animation. You know, it's like he's dead. He's just sitting there. He's just there. Uh, he becomes his body, becomes an object of veneration. The years go by and they're waiting, they're waiting. And sure enough, seven years later, on the dot, uh, the guru awakens from his uh, Naroda. And what's the first thing he says? I'm thirsty. <laughs> right? And the moral of that story, right? We go in, if you, you, the thirst does not get extinguished no matter how strong your samadhi is. It's not, it's not what it does. Uh, there's the, that famous um, Tibetan analogy that it's, you're sharpening the sword to cut off the head of delusion. Right? So you can sharpen your sword all day long. That won't cut off any heads, right? But you're sharpening the sword to enable yourself to compassionately cut through delusion, um, maybe not decapitate it. So that's a slight difference, right? Building concentration from just building, uh, from, from an ordinary kind of Vipassana instruction. Um, so it, it does take a little, for me, it does take a little getting used to, to just kind of, I think of it as catch and release, but not even really catching, or just note, like a distraction, back, distraction, back. Not in a forceful way, but in a just not going, not investigating uh, these diverse phenomena. Um, you have a choice when you're not sitting in formal sitting practice uh, how you want to go. One thing that's interesting to try is to stay on the primary object, you know, even when you're kind of not sitting on the cushion. So if you're walking, for example, obviously some amount of your mental activity is, or is, is on your feet because you're walking, but not, maybe not necessarily in the usual walking meditation way. You could try a walk where actually you stay on the primary object here. Um, you could try as you're going to the farmhouse and back, um, you know, having your attention here. It's obviously not going to be one-pointed because your eyes are open and you know, don't want to bump into someone else and all that. But having your primary attention again on the, on the, the sensations of the breath at the nostrils. If you find that crazy making, then don't do that. Um, but to the extent that that can, that the mind can settle in a easeful way uh, on the primary object, the more we've reduced the number of objects of attention, uh, the deeper the concentration becomes. Uh, if you don't do that, meaning you don't stay on the nostrils while, uh, while all around, then it's just an ordinary um, mindfulness uh, practice. Um, but I can't emphasize enough, and I'm sure, again, we know this from experience, the importance of that continuity of practice to building uh, concentrated, the concentrated mind. So if you're doing a standard walk during a walking meditation period, um, you know, just staying with the sensations on the feet, not taking too many other invitations for the mind to go wandering, um, not really noticing that much Right, just building that concentration. Again, sowing the seeds that later will ripen into a, 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 the ability of the mind to stay on an object. Um, 
it's not to say that that has to be 24 seven, just that kind of mind, but the more it is, you know, it's just the more there is that centering of mind, the deeper the concentration becomes and the more pleasure jhanic and otherwise arises like that actually makes the retreat more easeful as well. Um, a couple of funny things come along if you think about this form of practice. Um, since we're actually just kind of trying to allow the mind to find this natural center, things that help you do that are helpful. Uh, for example, earplugs, right? Remember that instruction about, well, you hear a sound, then you just work with the sound and just, you know, do your, do your practice and then come back to the breath? Hmm, not so important in this practice, right? Um, I have my favorite Oropax German earplugs, which are like the best earplugs on the planet, which I, I wear when I do jhana practice, when I'm sitting on, on my own, generally. That cuts down the number of sense objects. It also reduces my neurotic circuits of ill will when I perceive somebody else making a sound in the meditation hall and go off on a long disquisition about the decay of American society, right? So just having cutting down the number of sense objects. I'll leave out a few extra Oropax earplugs if you want to take them. They're reusable. They're wax. They're great. If you do use them, small note, they come wrapped in cotton. The cotton's not part of the earplug. That's just the wrapping. You take the wax and you put it in. That's fine. If there are things, if there are aids that enable this kind of quieting of the mind, that's very different from what you would hear in an insight retreat where, of course, you want to learn to have the mind work with whatever is, is coming up. Um, but here that's a little bit different. So that can be really, uh, that can be interesting to play with that. Uh, just allowing the mind to really chill out in a really profound way. And it does, um, yeah, allowing that to happen. So just on that last phrase, uh, I'll say more about this tomorrow night, but there is a great paradox in this practice. Uh, which is why this is still when Harry met Sariputta, which is the paradox of push and pull. Right? So on the one hand, you come on a retreat, and you, the teacher, first thing they say is quote the sutta about rapture and enjoyment and everything, and then the teacher says, don't go for it. <laughs> well, that's mean. You know, it's like we've got a pet dog, and we have this fantastic steak that's dangling right outside of its reach. Don't, don't go for the steak. Right? It's impossible, right? And yet that is, of course, the practice, right? The, the jhana does you more than you do the practice, than you do the jhana. You, the active part is the babysitting of the mind and the creating of the conditions, the wholesome conditions for jhana to arise. But you can't trick yourself into it, at least not as a beginner. You actually can trick yourself into it later, but not as a beginner. Um, you just, it has to, it, it unfolds. This is a natural capacity of mind. Um, it's clearly something that's present in different forms in lots of different contemplative traditions. And it's an interesting thing. The mind seems to just know how to hang out in these spaces. You know, ultimately that I think is, is kind of what we're doing as we train the mind to enter these states. It, it's like in the beginning, you're wandering around a house and the lights are off and you have no idea where the rooms are, where the light switches are. You don't know where anything is. It's, a, it's an unfamiliar house. You know, gradually, you come to see the rooms, and then you know where things are. Or to take a more prosaic example, you've moved into a room here, and you don't really know where the light switch is. But by, and so you have to look for the light switch and turn it on. But by within a couple of days, you'll know exactly where the light switch is, and you just automatically reach out your hand, and there's the light switch, because you've become familiar with it. 
it's, it's really, it's not any more mysterious a process than that. The mind comes to know these states, get very familiar with them, do it again and again, uh, and, uh, and that's, the, that's, the pro, that's the practice. But it's not something that can be, you can't push your way into it. So it is this purification of mind. Again, you notice the desire for the, for the pleasant experience coming up, you know, have, just having to kind of let that go and settle back. I actually would notice it physically sometimes when I was sitting. So I would do the nostril thing, and I would start unconsciously making my breath stronger so that it would be easier to perceive, which is, of course, the exact opposite. Like, you definitely, we don't want to be manipulating the breath in any way. We certainly don't want to be like, right? That's not a way to build calm and tranquility and pamoja, joy, gladness. Um, so, you know, I've noticed the striving in an embodied way, that there's that wanting. Okay, of course, that's natural. Forgive yourself for wanting. You're not a bad yogi. There it is. That's, that's fine. But, you know, the wanting is going to get in the way of, of the mind finding its way into these places, or in these states kind of um, unfolding. So that's especially true for the first 48 or to 72 hours, where we're just building concentration, nothing different. Don't worry about the jhana stuff. I'm not going to give instructions for uh, second, third, and fourth today or tomorrow. If some, again, if some one of you has a practice that, that you know you're already into, maybe I will privately, but don't don't even worry about it. Right? It's just now about creating those conditions. So I want to say a little bit about the format of the retreat, and I'm sure some of you are already curious about some of the, the sit format and the timing and things like that. So um, we're going to have, uh, well, I'll start with the most obvious thing, which are these two-part sits and what's that about and how does that work. So um, just to make sure I remember to say this, there's a sign-up sheet in the next room kind of by the kitchen stuff uh, to sign up to be a sit leader. If, uh, and I hope People will take that, and also for interviews. I'll say that more about that in a minute. So what do we mean by these two-part sits? As the mind gets more concentrated, uh, it becomes more possible to sit for longer periods, uh, and it's really, really helpful to do so. So the surf zone is true on the macro scale of a seven-day retreat. It's also true on a micro scale of a sit. You go through a period, you're in the sit, and you're trying to stay on the object, and the mind is just, it's a nice insight into non-self, right? The mind is just running, it's just doing its thing. And um, having a longer sit, you can kind of wait it out. And then as the retreat goes on, you know, if you do start sort of cultivating the jhanas, and like, you know, you can spend longer in each one without the bell ringing necessarily. So the way it'll work on a sort of mechanical level uh, is um, you can think of it as two sits back to back. And earlier in the retreat especially, or if your body, there's just no way you're going to sit for an hour and a half, just choose, choose one and choose one, make the other one a walking period, or maybe sit, practice in your room, or something like that. Um, so we'll come in, let's say, at 6.30 in the morning. We sit at 7.15, there's a bell, and that, there'll be some movement. So some people may want to leave at that time. Some people may want to stand up and just stretch for a minute, or just change your posture, change your position, right? You're even sitting with back pain for a while, and you want to kind of move your position. Um, and some people may come in at that point, at 7.15. So, and some may want to sit through, right? So it's a more, it's a flexible, kind of, it's kind of an option, right? Um, now, introducing the element of choice into a, into a schedule is 
you know, got its own problems. But again, everyone here has done multiple, you know, done, done retreats in the past. So obviously find a schedule that works for you and then surrender to it um, and see what happens. I think you'll find as the mind becomes more concentrated, you can do that hour and a half. And again, it's fine to get up and just stretch for a minute and then sit back down. Um, if uh, it's not, that's not necessarily a bio break. So if you need to use the restroom, the, the uh, request is to go out but not come back in. So people who are coming in, let's say at 7.15 to do the second 45 minutes, we're coming in at 7.15. There's a minute or so of noise as people get settled and then we're in. Um, and that, and that we've, if, you, if you're doing that one, two, three, four times a day, that's some really nice opportunity to sink into some really juicy, great concentration practice. It's really, I think it'll be really nice. And um, does it count as an hour and a half if you stand up and stretch for a second and then sit back down? I don't, I don't know about counting. I don't, I don't care if it counts. Uh, does it work? I, I find that this can be a really helpful way to practice. Um, and again, I've said it already, but if it's different in the beginning of the week from later, that's fine. So maybe in the beginning, 45 minutes is enough. <laughs> um, but then a few days later, you might, you might actually find like, and who knows? You know, sometimes, look, you'll be sitting and you'll get very concentrated and just that bell in the middle will be distracting. So then you'll have to spend a couple of minutes settling back in. Okay. But still you have that opportunity to do the 90 minute. So in terms of the sit leaders, this gets a little nitty gritty. Um, the person who leads the first half of one of those sits there's a bell at the beginning and a bell at the end, meaning 6.30 and 7.15. There's then a different sit leader for the second half. So that means you won't be changing seats, right? So you'll be sitting from wherever you're sitting. We have multiple bells, so you won't have to pass the chime back and forth. And there'll only be a chime, a bell at the end of the second half of the sit. So in this example, at 8 o'clock. So the first half person rings at the beginning and the end. The second half person rings just at the end, right? Which makes sense because we don't need two bells in the middle of the hour and a half. So um, uh, please do sign up to do that. If you'd like to sit up here, that's fine. Um, if you'd like to, you know, to, to be the bell ringer from where you're seated, that's fine. Um, and I found, I, you know, I, I did do this just three weeks ago. I found this was really helpful for folks. We're all in different bodies. We all have different you know, needs and, and, uh, and what feels comfortable in our bodies. So uh, this enables folks who, as you settle in, to sit longer, sit longer, and, and not, not. Are there any questions about that kind of the double sit format? Mm -hmm. I didn't quite understand how the second sit, Exactly, yeah. And it means, you know, normally at the start of a sit, we want to be seated before the bell. Um, but in that transition moment, just means there's going to be a minute or two of transition. And, um, you know, again, it, yeah, I think we'll be fine. But yes, exactly what you said. Oh, thanks, yeah.
Thank you. Yeah, that is that is right. Yeah. So we obviously we want to be sure to support every each other's practice as much as possible. So the second sit is a 45 minute. You're in. It's a commitment. Uh, so it's not. I'd like to sit for an hour. So I'm gonna do the first 45 minutes and then 15 minutes and then get up. Uh, exactly. Thanks for thanks for asking that. Uh, no, it's it's two 45 minute parts. Um, and again, you know, I personally when I do jhana retreat in particular, I sit a lot in my room. Um, and uh, you're welcome to do that, you know, if that's going to support your practice. Obviously, there's a benefit for being, you know, there is that kind of group energy, and it supports each other's practice to be here, and it feels good. There's other people doing this, and so that's warmly encouraged. Um, but yeah, if you feel like, you know, it could be an hour, so it could be 45 minutes, and then mindful walking downstairs, if you're downstairs, or back to the farmhouse, and then kind of sitting back down and, and uh, finishing it out in that way. Um, yeah, so early on, you know, in, in these retreats, the encouragement is for the full sit to really be that, that shamatha practice, samadhi practice of just building the concentration. As time goes on, we'll be adding in insight practice, certainly after exiting jhana, if they're coming out of jhana, or if you're just concentrated, so we'll shift gears, um, but I don't want to overload you with information. So if you have a practice and you feel like this is crazy, I can't do this just this without doing my usual 15 minutes of metta at the end of a sit. Of course, you know, do your do your 15 minutes of metta. That's fine. Um, or if it's an insight practice, that's fine too. Obviously, you know, you, you all experienced practitioners. Um, you know, we're focused just right now on the building of this uh, of this samadhi. Um, so that's the double sit thing. Hopefully, it's now demystified. Uh, I do think it's I do think it's a helpful thing. Um, we'll have interviews every other day, so everyone will have an interview three times with me during the retreat. The interviews will be in the first cottage down the path here. Um, I'm told that even if it does snow, there'll be a shovel that will <laughs> that will be wielded, so you can get down there easily. Uh, please sign up for interview slots. Um, the sh the sign up sheet is also kind of by the tea kettle there in the in the entryway, um, so you have uh, you'll have two sign up options. Uh, pl please definitely sign up for an interview, and then optionally, hopefully, uh, sign up for a um, for a sit leading slot as well. Right. Uh, I have one last thing, but any questions on what we've done so far? Yeah. Two That's a great point. So I will get a second bell, a second clock as well. Now, if you're only coming in, yeah, I'll get a second clock. It'll be here by the 6 a.m. sit, 6.30 sit. It'll be here by the 6.30 sit. There'll be two clocks up here. Um, and so when you come in, Actually, does that make sense? Actually, the two, the two clocks and the two bells will be on that table as you walk in that way, in the hallway there. And so if you're a sit leader, you pick up a clock, you pick up a bell, and then you can choose. If you'd like to sit up front, that's great. If you want to sit in your usual spot, that's great. So we will have two clocks and two bells or chimes uh, at the table as you walk in. Uh, so we won't leave it up here. Uh, they'll both be they'll both be back there. That should just keep the papancha, the mental proliferation, to a minimum. That will never happen. 
<laughs> if it happens, it happens, and I'm sure the rest of the group will start getting up because <laughs> you'll spy or watch. But the reason I say that will never happen is because, of course, we all know what really happens, which is 40 minutes in, everyone thinks that the sit timer has fallen asleep or is in some is in a Naroda Samapati and is in a state of suspended animation, and that's why they haven't. Uh, yeah, but in in fact, it just means that yeah, that hasn't run yet. I actually had a thought of. Um, doing all of the sits with, with an automatic uh, timer, either with uh, one of the apps or I have the Zen clock that, that chimes. It sort of felt kind of, I don't know. Yeah, the Luddite in me didn't like it. And I'm not a Luddite, I'm very tech, whatever, but just didn't feel feel right. So we'll, we'll, we'll do it the old-fashioned way, uh, as long as everyone signs up. If there are sits where no one signed up, then, um, then we'll have a phone be the sit leader. Yeah, I, I actually think the classroom, I'm going to check in with them afterwards. The classroom is a big space because we're not using it. We should be able to move. I'll, I'll take care of you know getting some of the furniture moved out of the way. Uh, I think that's a great place to do it. Um, it is, yeah, there's not a good indoor walking space. But this space out front here is usually pretty good. And uh, yeah, so I'm not a huge fan of the hallway downstairs just because people sometimes need to get in and out and then you feel bad because you don't want to disturb the person doing their practice. Um, but uh, yeah, there's um, also on the second floor of the farmhouse, there are fewer yogis who are there and a pretty good hallway there. But there I actually don't do it. When I sat with Lee here doing his jhana retreat, I, I walked up there and it made so many creaks. I was like, this is not helping my concentration at all, so I stopped doing it. Um, great. Uh, last thing I, I wanted to bring up. It, oh, sure, sorry, I didn't see you, sorry. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it'll be the same time for each of the three days, so that you'll have the. So it'll be one group will have um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. The other will have Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, and it'll be at the same time uh, each of those each of your three days. So you think three days. No, you, you just write your name down once, and that counts for three days. Okay. Yep. And uh, obviously, with the interviews, sometimes they most of them are during walks, some are during sits, and so you'll. You'll just find your way in. Incidentally, with the yogi job sit thing, um, now that I've explained the double sit format, hopefully it makes a little more sense. So that if your yogi job runs into that sit period time, you'll, it just means the first half of that uh, sit, basically. So you would come in at the middle. Um, and that's only going to apply to a few of you because there's um, more than enough time in the mornings. Um, and so it's, it, it's, it's just going to be part of the practice and part of the rhythm. It'll be fine. Um, and don't feel like, but uh, what um, Steve said is definitely true from a practice point of view as well as from a yogi job point of view. So it's not helpful to the center if you rush through your job, but it's also not helpful to the practice. It'd be much better for you to be able to just be calm um, doing your yogi job. That's much more valuable than having an extra time sitting in the, sit in the meditation hall. Right, because that's building that calm. You're doing your thing. You're not getting agitated. The mind is, you know, anytime the mind is getting really agitated, 
you know, it's, it's, there is, it's a funny dance because, right, we're not here to just totally just chill out and have a lovely sweet time at a spa vacation. And yet, to the extent you can do that over the first few days, go for it, right? I mean, decrease the sense objects. Don't necessarily go for lots of fast, long walks and stuff. And obviously, everyone knows not to walk up to the forest refuge under any circumstances because this might disturb them. So we want to reduce the number of sense objects. But it's good to relax. Like, that's going to help the mind get, you know, we're building tranquility, pasadi, right? It's one of the factors of awakening. We want to quiet down the mind, and, and that's, that's fine. So uh, going through the yogi job in a relaxed way, you know, eating in a relaxed way, uh, all of that is, is really conducive uh, to building samadhi. Um, if you want, the uh, instructions for... Uh, kind of getting to access concentration, which is not really a thing, but just means concentration to the level that the jhanas could arise from there. Um, that instruction and the entering to the first jhana instruction is on a leaflet uh, that's also next to the sign-ups for the interviews and for the sit, sit leaders. Uh, there's another one of those pieces of paper which will have second, third, and fourth jhana on it, but I'm not going to put those out yet because uh, that's irrelevant. It may also be unhelpful to take that piece of paper because all we're doing is just ordinary concentration practice anyway. So it's up to you. Feel free to take it or leave it. Um, they'll be there for forever, uh, uh, subject to the, uh, the the factor of impermanence. And um, you can just, you know, uh, take it if it's helpful and leave it if it's not helpful. And definitely don't worry about what's written there in detail because I'm going to go through that in more detail tomorrow morning. Um, you know, the, the genetic factors and the this and the that and all that kind of stuff um, will go through. So you don't have to, it's not meant that, those are meant to be like the notes uh, to, the, to the instructions, not the instructions themselves. Individual interviews, uh, roughly 10 minutes, so a short period of time, focused on practice. But um, uh, it's, you know, it's it, one thing. I, I prefer individual interviews in general because I'm an introvert. But also for this kind of practice, obviously comparing mind is, is a factor that's going to just arise, you know. Because, uh, again, there's this thing out there. It's like, it, you know, especially those of us who do Vipassana, like we're so taught, don't have a goal, right? I mean, that's so unhelpful to meditation practice to like have some goal, like I'm going to sit and I'm going to, you know. And yet here's this thing which kind of looks like a goal. And I've, I've said don't treat it as a goal, like you, but it is kind of a goal. And so it's, it's that push-pull. And uh, there again, it's, it can be really unhelpful. Like, you know, one person's busy talking about their incredible attainments and they've developed the supernormal powers and they can, you know, have the mind of the, the Buddha eye and they can see, and you're trying to get into excess concentration. <laughs> so it's, which is fine. You know, we're all, it's just... Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll do individual interviews. Long answer to a simple question. This is the only time where I'll talk this much. We have a short period from 11.30 to 12, which is just going to be, mostly going to be Q&A if cues arise. Otherwise, we'll just sit. Uh, tomorrow, there'll be some practice instruction. But uh, that 11.30 to 12 period is not a Dharma talk. It's only um, just you know, nuts and bolts of practice. So you can think of that as nuts and bolts time. And then at 7.30, there's one of these Dharma talks. And uh, yeah, I, um, 
again, I, you know, I have that graduate degree in religion and I love studying this stuff and we are at BCBS, which is about study and practice. But, um, for this week, we're going to try to minimize some of the concepts that, and it's hard because the jhanas themselves have all these concepts and associations, but I'm going to do my best to just, you know, minimize that to allow the mind to, to quiet down, focus in. Mm-hmm. An environmental question. Yeah. Uh, more mainly consensus. I find it quite hot in here. Um, but I know for some it might be nice and warm. Yeah. I just wonder if we have a little bit more or if I could then cheat and so I'd rather you didn't cheat. I appreciate your attempt to get consensus on that. Um, I'll do a, since we're at the beginning of the retreat and this papancha is not going to be harmful to anyone's practice. Um, uh, is anyone feeling like if it's cooler than this, they would be uncomfortable? Okay, so I will talk to, uh, to BCBS about making it, let's say, two degrees cooler than it is right now. Um, and uh, feel free to, you know, in an interview or a note, if that's like you're st- if someone's if you're cold or if you're hot or whatever, uh, that's fine to let me know and we can tweak it. Uh, wow, consensus that was fast. <laughs> that's great. All right, so let's uh, take a ten-minute uh, stretch break and sign up for interview break, and then we'll do a short meta guided meta together and uh, close the evening. <laughs> 